Welcome to this episode of Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey. This episode will cover chapters 6 and 7 of Ether. So, uh, we're going to pick the story back up now with the brother of Jared. Remember, if if you listened uh, to last week's episodes, I mentioned that Moroni is quite different than his, his father Mormon in record-keeping and record-sharing. He inserts himself quite a bit. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, quite a bit of insertion uh, and commentary by Moroni. We're going to get more of it in chapter, especially, you know, chapter 8, chapter 12. Um, he's, just, he's just different and not bad or, or whatever, He but he wants to share his own personal thoughts, his journey as well. And uh, as he's sharing the record of of the, the Jaredites, his kind of experience. And so we get we get a lot of that, uh, which is very insightful. I mean, either chapter 12 is probably one of the most cited uh, chapters from the book of Ether, and it's actually just Moroni talking. Uh, but with that said, chapter 6, we pick the story back up with them, uh, the Jaredites, crossing the ocean now. And... We're going to move into their their setting up of their society and their civilization. And I mentioned this in the overview chapter this week, but when you're mired in the details, it can be difficult to see a, the, the pride cycle. It can be difficult to see the lessons to be learned. And I think we can see that in our own lives. It can be hard to know what lessons to learn when we're in the thick of a battle, when we're in the thick of a trial or a hard time, or even good times, it can be hard to see the lesson. Often where we see it is when we're looking backwards, retrospectively, and we say, oh, that's how this and this connect, and man, why didn't I see that before, and it's so clear and easy. Well, the book of Jared, it's a great, or the book of Jared, the book of Ether is a great um, example of that, in that Moroni zooms out for us, so we get this wide angle, wide lens view of the entire history of their people, rapidly and so we can see the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and and eventual utter fall and complete destruction and what led to the rises and what led to the falls and really easily and so as i was studying this week the word that president nelson uh, used in his talk uh myopic myopic myopia myopic short-sightedness um came to me that we need to avoid that and try our best to avoid that in our scripture study, in our own lives. Because when we zoom out and take a step back, and we often sit here like, oh, what's the eternal perspective? But really, when, we t- when we're able to do that, not only does it make enduring pain, uh, trial, painful trials easier and uh, because we can see that it is maybe just a short time or whatever, but it also allows us to see the lessons that we can learn more easily. So, in chapter 6, verse 3, it says, And thus the Lord caused stones to shine in the darkness to give light unto men and women and children, that they might not cross the great waters in darkness. Sister Ardeth G. Cap, former young uh, women general president, said, You have the light within. You can shine in darkness. You can light up the world. You can help dispel the darkness. You can make a difference. We can be that light for those around us so that they don't have to travel in darkness. And the Lord, if we turn to him, as did the brother of Jared and, the, and their families, uh, if we turn to them in that way, the Lord will not cause us to cross our our great deep, our wilderness, our life in the dark with no light. Uh, he, after all, Christ is the light of the world. Uh, in verses 5 through 8, it says that the Lord, uh, basically, he, he fulfilled his promise to the brother of Jared that, 
The winds never did cease to blow towards the promised land while they're on the waters. He drove them towards the promised land, right? And they were, but it does say that it was hard, right? And it came to pass that they were many times buried in the depths of the sea and uh, no water could hurt them because their vessels were tight. So, but it wasn't a pleasant necessarily journey and voyage, but they were constantly being pressed and pushed towards the promised land. Uh, Charles A. Callas, in a conference uh, address in April 1943, said, The winds blew, and they were in imminent danger all the while on that perilous journey. God sustained them. And we read that although these gales and tempests raged, holding destruction in their wake, that the wind was continually blowing toward the promised land. And these adversities through which we are passing, these terrible wars and all these horrible things that were prevailing, that are are prevailing are in the power of God. And remember, he's saying this is 1943, World War II. They're in the power of God. He can stop them when he chooses, when his divine purposes are fulfilled. But let us not forget that through the sea of trouble, our adversities, the experiences through which we pass, which God will make work together for our good, if we will obey him, all these are blowing us forward to the ha- to the haven of rest, to a glorious future, to eternal life, and unitedly we join in John's loving response, even so, come, O Lord Jesus. Think about our day and time that we live in, in the crazy and commotion. The Lord is in it. And if we uh, are in our tight, if our, we are in our barges that are tight like unto a dish, and they, that are tight like unto the uh, Ark of Noah, then we will be protected. So let's take a step back. Who is in that? Family. Right? And uh, our homes and that all of their belongings, right? So close, close kin start there, move outwards. But if we have our house in order and our barges are tight like into a dish, and I'll get to more of what I mean by that in a minute here, then we'll be not only protected from harm, but the harm and the calamity and the commotion that's going on around us will actually drive us towards the promised land, towards eternal life, towards perfection, towards refinement. Now, what are those barges? Remember back, they were tight. How are they, how are they tight? And I mentioned this. They're like the, And this is where I uh, draw the authority from last week uh, in comparing the ships that the brother of Jared and the Jaredites built to Noah's Ark because Moroni tells us, and they were tight like unto a unto the Ark of Noah. They were like that Noah's Ark, okay? And what does Noah's Ark have? And what do these Jaredite um, ships had? They had the light of Christ inside of them. Despite what was going on outside and the darkness and the waves and the storms and whatever else. And even when, look, even when it was sunny and they had pleasant days that they were out sailing, they still had a light inside. It didn't, what was going on around them didn't matter. The light was within. And what kept them safe was that they were tight. And what makes them tight was the pitch, the kafar, which is has been interpreted and translated from Hebrew to English. English, atonement, that it's the only word, it's the only language that the word atonement exists in. It was made up in the English to really uh, explain some other words that we didn't have words for. And so atonement is an English word, but one of the words that has been translated as that is Hebrew, kafar, which means to cover, and they use this pitch to cover, this black tarry material, to cover the ark. 
And it's what sealed it. It's what made it watertight. The atonement of Christ is what allowed these barges and then the Ark of Noah to float, to not be uh, weighed down by water and sink. And so as we're going through the crushing waves of our life, what's going to allow us to, to make it through is the atonement of Christ. He's our light within. He's what drives us forward. And he's what protects us from uh, the raging storm outside. I also want to just take a quick moment and compare the journeys of uh, the Jaredites to the journey of the Lamanites, Nephites and Lamanites. In Nephi, we read about uh, Laman and Lemuel and their wives being rude and making themselves merry, essentially, uh, and basically driving away the spirit. In Jared, uh, Ether, I keep saying Jared, but in the Jaredite record, um, it says in verse 9 that they were singing praises unto the Lord. And it reminds me of uh, section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants, 50, uh, yeah, 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that against none else is the Lord's wrath kindled to save those who uh, reject, or I'm, I'm trying to just paraphrase this now, should have just turned it there, but basically it says, if the only, you know what, we're going to read it. How about that? I was trying to remember it, and then it just out my brain. So it says, And in nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things, and obey not his commandments. These people were confessing in the Lord's hand in all things, even as they were crossing the great deep for nearly a year's time. And so then they arrive, so they arrive humbly into the uh, new world, and... They were taught to remain humble. Joseph Elder Joseph B. Worland said that humility is the recognition and attitude that one must rely on the Lord's assistance to make it through this life. Bishop Richard C. Edgeley, uh, in talking about humility, said, As I have pondered these faithful members, uh, he's talking about uh, just members of the church in general, I am struck by two qualities they all seem to have. First, regardless of social or economic status or position, their humility leads to submissiveness to the Lord's will. And second, in spite of difficulties and trials of life, they are able to maintain a sense of gratitude for God's blessings and life's goodness. Humility and gratitude are truly the twin characteristics of happiness. In the kingdom of God, greatness begins with humility and submissiveness. These companion virtues are the first critical steps to opening the door to the blessings of God and the power of the priesthood. It matters not who we are or how lofty our credentials appear. Humility and submissiveness to the Lord, coupled with a grateful heart, are our strength and our hope. And because of this humility, we learn in verse 17 that they were taught, the Jaredites were taught from on high, they had revelation. They were given the needed revelation to prosper and uh, begin their society. Uh, Elder Richard G. Scott said, when all challenges pour down upon you, you will have a quiet inner feeling of support. You'll be prompted to know what to do. You can live in the world of turmoil and great challenge and be at peace. You'll be inspired to know what to do and to have the power and capacity to do it. Remember the promise of the Lord. You are to be taught from on high. Sanctify yourselves, that is to keep my commandments, and you shall be endowed with power. And that, uh, he was talking about uh, how we can receive direction and be taught from on high and the 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 outcome of that is that despite what's going on and despite turmoil and trials and challenges we can have an inner peace and know what we need to do 
we can know what the next right thing to do is. So the uh, time to pick a new leader had come. Jared and his brother become starting to get old. They have a bunch of sons and daughters. And none of the sons want to be the king. Uh, it says, And it came to pass that neither were the sons of Jared, even all save it were one. And Uriah was a, uh, anointed to be the king. So he's it's the very last son of Jared, presumably. Uh, otherwise, you would have stopped before you got to him. And you wouldn't have been able to say that uh, all save it were one. So just this one is the final one. And he says, yeah, sure, I'll do it. This The brother of Jared had warned his brother and said, hey, king is going to lead to the bad things. But brother of Jared says, well, they want a king. Let's just give him a king. So they decide to do that. So Uriah takes over. And he does. He, he rules in righteousness. Um, but it does not. Uh, last very long. And as we get into chapter 7, we realize that it is uh, just one generation later that things start to take uh, a turn for the worst. And uh, you can read that. I mean, just read the chapter heading. Chapter 7 says, Uriah reigns in righteousness amid usurpation and strife. The rival kingdoms of Shul and Kohar set up. Prophets condemn the wickedness and idolatry of the people who then repent. So they do repent, but already we have this cycle starting where we're gonna the one righteous king can't pass it off to another righteous king even one time without there being strife and and dissensions. So we do have, and I maybe misspoke a bit, but we do get one transition from Uriah to his son Kib. But then by the time Kib is king, uh, his son, Korhor, rebels. And so we're two, three verses into chapter seven. We're basically uh, the second king in. So you got Uriah and then you have Kib. Two kings in. His son is causing dissensions and strife. And we're basically going to just go from brothers and uncles fighting and bickering and having just... uh, heck of a time trying to know who's in charge and who wants who has the power and sometimes they're going to be penitent and but oftentimes they're not so chapter seven we get that uh king shul's people heeded the prophet's warnings so we go from uh oriah to kib to korahor and korahor puts his dad kib in captivity and while in captivity, Kib has another son named Shul. And now Shul and Ko... I keep saying Korahor. I, um, things get real confusing here, guys. Because a, a Kohor gets thrown in here, too. So Korahor and Kohor, don't get them confused. Basically, without... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the weeds here. There's just a lot of infighting. And it's, like I said, brothers and uncles and fathers and sons just trying to get power and doesn't go great most of the time. But Shul's people, when the prophets come, they do listen and they do repent. And President Eyring in talking about uh, listening to a prophet's message and then acting said, because the Lord is kind, he calls servants to warn people of danger. That call to warn is made harder and more important by the fact that the warnings of most worth are about dangers that people don't yet think are real. 
And that struck me because prophets are watchmen on the tower. We can't see what's coming, but they can. But because we can't see what's coming, it can be it it takes it takes faith to listen and heed to the prophets the prophet's message. Because they warn us about dangers that aren't here yet. They're warning us to take action right now to avoid a downfall. Think of Alma in Ammonihah in chapter 8 of Alma. Well, really, 8 through 14. Him and uh, Amulek go and are teaching the people in Ammonihah, telling them that they're going to be destroyed. And they laugh at them and say, we're safe, we're fine, we're, in, we're not even close to the Lamanites and they can't come and get us. You're crazy. It was a danger that wasn't real to them. So they didn't they didn't listen. They didn't have the faith to listen. And what happened? They were destroyed. So when the prophet speaks, do it. When the Lord commands, do it. And the Lord speaks to the prophets. And prophets uh, and their messages are often and frequently rejected. And Elder Robert E. Hales said this, Prophets must often warn of the consequences of violating God's laws. They do not preach that which is popular with the world. Why do prophets proclaim unpopular commandments and call society to, to repentance for rejoicing, modifying, and even ignoring the commandments? Sorry, rejecting, modifying, and even ignoring the commandments. The reason is very simple. Upon receiving revelation, prophets have no choice but to proclaim and reaffirm that which God has given them to tell the world. Uh, in the same vein, Elder L. Eldon Porter of the Presidency of the Seventy in 1999 said, uh, some pe- complain that when a prof- when the prophets speak with clarity and firmness, they are take- taking our agency away. We are still free to choose, but we must accept the consequences of those decisions. The prophets do not take away our agency. They simply warn us of what the consequences of our choices will be. How foolish is it to fault the prophets for their warnings? What the prophets actually do is they create a choice for us. They cr- They create and make agency more clear because they say, here are the choices and here are even the outcomes or the consequences of those. Now you're even more free to choose. You can choose this consequence or that consequence. It's it's even clearer decision to make. Creating this choice, though, and by creating uh, you know, choice A and choice B with consequence A and consequence B, what happens is neutral ground is no longer available. When the prophet speaks, neutral ground no longer exists. And that it's true for us as the as members of the church, but it's also true for the world. Because the prophet speaks for God for the world. He's not the prophet. He's the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, he's the prophet on the world today, for the world today. And when he speaks, he speaks to all the sons and daughters of God on the earth. And when he speaks... There is no more neutral ground on the things for which he, about which he speaks. He gives us and lays out path A and path B. There's no more middle ground. In the end of chapter 7, the people uh, says, Because the people did repent of their iniquities and idolatries, the Lord did spare them, and they began again to prosper in the land. So here we get this zoomed out view. What, what allowed them to be spared? What allowed them to prosper? Repentance. What allows us to be spared? What allows us in our individual lives to prosper, to have the light of Christ within us? Repentance. And so now there's uh, 
no more wars. Shul executes his the, the rest of his days in righteousness, and we move into uh, chapter eight, and we get guess what? More contention and dissension. You never would have guessed, right? <laughs> so in the next episode, we'll cover chapters eight and nine, and we'll just talk about more happy, happy, fun, fun times by the Jaredites and their wickedness and uh, secret combinations and just, you know, happy, lighthearted, fun things and stuff. But we'll learn some things too along the way. So no worries. Hope you'll join me in the next episode as we talk about Ether chapters eight and nine. Thank you.